Hello and welcome back to First Time Films. As you've seen from the title, um, we are going to be releasing a new series. Um, back in 2020, I graduated from the University of Glasgow and my undergraduate dissertation was in uh, the historical erasure of the male bisexual from mainstream American cinema. So I'm going to be basically going through that study that I did, which was titled The Missing Bee, and we will be releasing it in podcast form here on First Time Films. So the study, like I said, tracks the historical developments in the erasure of male bisexuality from mainstream American cinema. In today's episode, we're going to introduce this concept and have a look at the existing literature surrounding the analysis of male bisexuality in cinema. And we're going to find that mainstream film theorists have rhetorically contributed to the erasure of bisexuality from spaces it could legitimately occupy, which sets up a symbiotic destructive relationship between the film theory and the film text themselves. Next time we will then explore examples of male bisexuality in American mainstream cinema before the year 2000 to find that Whilst it was a time of low representation across all sexual minorities, the portrayal of male bisexuals specifically was categorised by misrepresentation in the form of transvesticism and indeed vulgarity. After that, we will look at an analysis of Broke by Mountain, which we will attest will mark that film and the early 2000s generally as a turning point in the representation of male bisexuals on screen as the discourse surrounding that film's release began a trend of privileging what we'll deem monosexual romances at the expense of bisexual awareness. And then finally, chapter four will track this trend, arguing that this ideology has seeped its way into modern mainstream texts themselves, such as Call Me By Your Name and Bohemian Rhapsody. And then we will conclude by analysing all these common factors in the historic erasure of the male bisexual and assess how this can be corrected in the future. But I want to start by pointing out that in 2019, GLAAD reported that LGBTQ plus representation in American cinema was on the rise, with a record number of gay and lesbian characters being represented on screen. However, the very same report also stated that out of all the films which featured LGBTQ plus representation, only 15% of them featured a male or female bisexual character. And whilst disappointing, this marginalisation of the male bisexual, although perhaps now more evident than ever, is not a modern phenomenon and it's not one that's exclusive to cinema. In fact, if we go all the way back to 1948, Alfred Kinsey published Sexual Behaviour in the Human Male, a groundbreaking work that questioned and challenged the heteronormative construct that sexuality was a binary between heterosexuality and homosexuality. In the changing dynamics of bisexual men's lives, Eric Anderson and Mark McCormick argue the importance of Kinsey's research, stating that not only was the cultural presumption of heterosexuality called into question by his work, but also gender exclusivity and sexual desire was troubled as well, and that Kinsey demonstrated that bisexual desire was not uncommon among men. Indeed, if we look at Kinsey's text, his language is perfectly frank in the conclusion of his research where he states that males do not represent two discrete populations, heterosexual and homosexual. The world is not to be divided into sheep and goats. Not all things are black 
nor all things white. It is a fundamental of taximony that nature rarely deals with discrete categories. Uh, in short, society's monosexual bubble was burst now over 70 years ago. However, while Anderson and McCormick claim that Kinsey's ideas are now considered common sense, they also concede that the awareness of homosexual and bisexual attraction and behaviours does not mean that they are universally culturally acceptable. And in fact, this statement is supported by Gregory M. Herrick, who first published the results to his study on the attitudes of heterosexual individuals towards bisexuals in 2002. In the conclusion to his research, Herrick shared his disheartening results, stating that respondents' attitudes towards bisexual men and women were more negative than for all other groups except injecting drug users. In addition, Overall ratings for bisexual men were somewhat lower than for bisexual women and this difference is more interpretable when respondent gender and thermometer scores for lesbian and gay male targets are also considered. Heterosexual women felt less favourable towards bisexuals than homosexuals regardless of gender. By contrast, heterosexual men felt less favourable towards sexual minority males whether bisexual or gay than females whether bisexual or lesbian. Regardless of the target sexual orientation, the, the most negative ratings were those of heterosexual men for male sexual minorities. And as demonstrated in Herrick's research, heterosexuals on both sides of the gender line are more accepting of homosexual individuals than they are of bisexuals. Uh, moreover, male bisexuals faced the most discrimination overall when compared with their female counterparts. Indeed, this rejection of the male bisexual is mirrored when one looks at the representation of sexual minorities in mainstream American cinema, with the annals of cinematic history clearly demonstrating that the male bisexual has not only been feebly underrepresented, but even in the times of accelerated representation for LGBTQ plus characters on screen, the male bisexual has often been completely marginalised. This point will be the central focus of this study, that the male bisexual has continuously been both underrepresented and misrepresented in American mainstream cinema, which explicit examples of male bisexuality within films have often erased um, the male bisexual, but also the discourse around them has erased the male bisexual. And to prove this point, the study will firstly look at the existing academic literature surrounding LGBTQ plus texts to show that the male bisexual has been nullified and their unique stories have often been clustered with the experience of homosexual males within these works. Now, admittedly, when we look at the literature surrounding queer cinema, uh, omitting the male bisexual from their studies, it's a bit of a catch-22 situation. If there are limited examples of the male bisexual in American mainstream cinema to begin with, then that, in theory, should explain its absence in the surrounding literature. Having said this, with this accepted, there are still more problematic examples wherein the discourse surrounding queer cinema has actively and actually contributed to the erasure or displacement of the male bisexual subject from spaces it could legitimately occupy. 
However, before looking into this further, it is important to note that there have been improvements in evaluating the relationship between bisexuality and mainstream cinema in the last 20 years. Now, by and large, this comes from academic sources purpose made to explore this topic, such as the Journal of, Bis uh, the Journal of Bisexuality, which covers a wider range of topics than cinema exclusively. Uh, in writing in 2011, uh, BC Roberts too acknowledged the importance of the improving situation in bisexual cinematic studies, emphasising how vital it is to recognise the differences in our perspectives which inevitably arise when a minority group has achieved some degree of stability and cohesion. Now, Roberts does go on more negatively than this in his writing, somewhat lamenting the fact that in his time researching the scholarship surrounding uh, bisexuals in cinema, he found that most, if not all of them, had been published in the Journal of Bisexuality exclusively. Now, this line of thinking is why this study will begin with the discussion on the male bisexual's place within the realms of film literature here at The Theory. Admittedly, as has already been alluded to, there have been significant improvements made in exploring the bisexual's place in the history of cinema, but it is more often than not confined to its own limited area of literary discourse. Now, just as mainstream American cinema has more readily included homosexual characters in its productions than their bisexual counterparts, so too has the study of homosexual inclusion in cinema been readily accepted into the mainstream discourse of film criticism. This, of course, is not a new phenomenon, as the bisexual has not just traditionally been displaced from mainstream academic spaces, but queer spaces also. For example, in Richard Dyer's essay Stereotyping, he seems to explicitly argue that the presence of bisexual characters within cinema would only serve to confuse viewers, stating, It is felt necessary to establish the character's gayness because that one aspect of her or his personality is held to give you and explain the rest of the personality. By signalling gayness from the character's first appearance, all the character's subsequent actions and words can be understood, explained, and explained away as those of a gay person. Moreover, it seems more probable that gayness is, as a material category, far more fluid than class, gender, or race. That is, most people are not either gay or non-gay, but have to varying degrees the capacity for both. However, this fluidity is unsettling both to the rigidity of social categorization and to the maintenance of heterosexual hegemony. Never can say that word. What's more, the invisibility of gayness may come creeping up on heterosexuality unawares and fluid-like seep into the citadel. It is therefore reassuring to have gayness firmly categorised and kept separate from the start through a widely known iconography. Now, Dyer's rejection of fluidity in favour of firm categorisation, as he puts it, is one of the earliest examples of a rhetoric that would permeate into the discourse surrounding LGBTQ plus characters for years to come. An adoption of heteronormativity at the expense of bisexual visibility. 
Potentially more problematic than Dyer's stance is the, the, the tone of the revised edition's introduction to the supplement of the text filmography, which invokes such arguments that a representation of a gay person is not a true representation if it contains a gay character experimenting with the opposite sex or going no further than refusing to comply with heterosexual expectations. Now, whilst Dyer's later work Now You See It does an emphatically better job acknowledging the presence of individuals outside of the two main monosexual groups, attesting in the study's closing remarks that queer experiences will eventually be accepted into the mainstream, he also continuously confuses bisexuality with transvesticism within the text. Speaking of the male and female personas of characters, he is identified as bisexual. As such, Diarep demonstrates an unfortunate loose grasp on the differences between sexuality and gender. And bisexual erasure from more modern queer works may be less evident, but it's still certainly there, usually manifesting itself in two distinct ways. The first of these is the near complete omission of bisexuality as a term which is most common in works published before the year 2000. Now, one particular example of this would be the 1993 publication Queer Looks, the introduction of which makes it clear that the study will focus on gay and lesbian film and gay and lesbian television specifically, without any mention of bisexuality whatsoever. However, the second way in which male bisexuality has been erased from LGBTQ plus film theory publications is much more subtle and is usually done through what this study would define as the reframing of the bisexual existence. Now, often, this will include a combination of either collating bisexual males and the term gay males uh, without any acknowledgement of their specific experiences or circumstances, haphazardly conflating bisexuality and transvesticism, which we've already talked about briefly, or linking bisexuality to displays of femininity in straight males. Now, the first example of this more subtle subset of bisexual erasure in LGBTQ plus film academia comes in Christopher Pulin's Straight Girls and Queer Guys, with Pulin continually lamenting the lack of coherency and how these relationships are commonly portrayed on screen. Whilst Poulin does an excellent job at highlighting the complicated dichotomy of gender and sexual dynamics within these relationships, he labels the will-they-won't-they dynamics of pairings such as the titular characters of the television show Will and Grace as being the result of heterosexual female address. In several instances, Pulin dismisses the bisexual potential of these relationships as merely catering to a predominantly heterosexual audience, which in turn inadvertently dismisses bisexuality as a legitimate sexual orientation. By stating that examples of bicuriousness are for the exclusive benefit of straight audiences, Pulin unfortunately dismisses the lived experience of bisexual men exploring different facets of their orientation. A subsequent example occurs in Chris Strayer's Deviant Eyes, Deviant Bodies, more specifically the book's second chapter exploring temporary transvestite films such as Some Like It Hot a genre that will be explored in more detail in the next instalment of this podcast series. Now, Strayer lays out clearly the very specific satisfaction audiences gain from watching these films, arguing that the transgression of gender dynamics within them allows the audiences to experiment within taboo without being threatened by it. 
However, when discussing the kissing scenes present uh, during these films, Strayer is guilty of incorrectly representing bisexual attraction, stating that for the transvestite character to be considered bisexual, they would find kissing a straight male both pleasant and unpleasant. Now, in defining bisexuality in this way, Strayer seems to suggest that it's in a state of flux between heterosexuality and homosexuality, thus once again denying bisexuality a static existence and challenging its status as a legitimate sexual orientation. Now overall, the relationship between bisexual representation in American mainstream cinema and the male bisexual's place within film academia is a complicated one. As previously acknowledged, the lack of explicit bisexual content available for scholars to discuss perhaps excuses the absence of the bisexual from scholarly, scholarly research at a first glance. However, as demonstrated, the bisexual has often been displaced from spaces it could legitimately occupy within film academia by a combination of aggressive erasure, thoughtless omission and an unfortunate misunderstanding of bisexuality itself. Coincidentally, these strategies of bisexual erasure are mirrored when close reading of the appearances of male bisexual characters in American mainstream texts. And we're going to focus with a look at the texts themselves, more specifically early examples of these texts in the next instalment of this podcast series. I hope you've enjoyed what you've heard so far and I'll be back with you next time.